0: Welcome to Bible Study this morning. So glad to have you here with us today. A special welcome to those listening uh, in the St. Louis area on AM 850 KFUO and worldwide on KFUO.org. There are handouts on the bleachers for those of you who are uh, in the gym. And as is our usual practice, we'll be looking at the lectionary readings for the upcoming Sunday. Uh, So the readings for November 15th. Just a few quick announcements before we begin our Bible study. The first is... Um, the shoebox deadline for the Operation Christmas Child is next Sunday. So I know if you're in, at 8 o'clock church, you heard uh, Pastor Thomas uh, mention that, but I did want to say it here as well, especially if we have uh, anyone listening who's a member that has a shoebox and may not be able to be here today but wants to make sure they get their shoebox in. The deadline for that is next Sunday, or you can bring it uh, throughout this week. Uh, and then the second announcement is that uh, our music at St. Paul's continues, uh, and that continues to today at 3 o'clock, so we have the American I Choir doing some pieces by a a guy you probably have heard of, Johann Sebastian Bach, Uh, and so that's, again, a a fantastic uh, program, and I believe, if I remember correctly, it's the 29th season of the music at St. Paul, so that's pretty incredible. It's older than me, so make of that what you will. (laughs) But before we begin uh, with our Bible study this morning, let's begin with the word of prayer. Uh, Dear Lord, we thank you for the many gifts that you give us. We thank you uh, that you keep us watchful, prepared uh, in your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that as we continue to study your word, as we uh, go about our daily lives, that we would not uh, grow complacent in our faith, but strive to be passionate and fervent in our zeal and our love for you and for one another. And we pray all these things in the name of your son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, so the readings uh, for the upcoming Sunday, we're going to start with Psalm 90, uh, but you may notice the theme, and I thought, you know, given everything that's been going on and how contentious things have been, it's good that we have such a cheerful theme like God's wrath um, to look forward to to next Sunday. But it's not all bad, and in fact, it's actually a, a great reminder, I think, because it, it puts a lot of things in perspective, perhaps even things that have been going on in our country, in our own lives, in our communities, it really puts them... Uh, in perspective. But we begin with Psalm 90. And in Psalm 90, we read as the, as the title right away that it's a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Now, I wanted to highlight that last little title given to Moses, man of God, because that is something uh, that fairly uniquely descri- is a descriptor for Moses. In fact, besides in just this Psalm, uh, in Ezra, in Joshua, and also in Deuteronomy, Moses is given this description, that he is Moses, the man of God. And so when you see that, um, you ultimately are thinking, um, okay, so what aspects of Moses' life, perhaps, um, gave him such a title? One of the first is God communicated directly with Moses, right? We go back to the burning bush in Exodus. Uh, but then God also connect, uh, communicated directly with Moses on Mount Sinai. Uh, and throughout Moses' life. So it's one of the reasons why Moses himself is given this unique title, the man of God. And that's not to mean no one else is of God, but those, that particular title, when it's ascribed uh, in the Old Testament, usually uh, is referring to Moses. And we begin Psalm 90 with verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Uh, and I'm going to stop there, not because it's uh, anything too uh, theological. But it was interesting, when I uh, was looking through the psalm, I did not realize that this psalm is the basis for uh, the very well-known hymn, Uh, Our God, uh, or O God, Our Help in Ages Past. One that I feel uh, probably a lot of people are very familiar with. But if you know that hymn, and you're thinking of those uh, lyrics of that hymn as we read through the the psalm, you can kind of just pick up how um, Isaac Watts used it, uh, this psalm, as the inspiration for that hymn. But Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That word in Hebrew for everlasting is olam, and it's literally just that, forever. It's a a descriptor of God's uh, unique place, that he is the one who is eternal Forever of Forevers, everlasting to everlasting. That He is not, um, He does not have a start point and an end point, that He is the eternal God, the Creator of the world. In verse 3, you return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away. As with a flood, they are like a dream, and this is the first instance um, where we see one of the kind of the key themes throughout the psalm, which is uh, a sense of scale, a difference in the scale of God and in our the scale of our own earthly lives. But none of us as humans can say, "Well, a thousand years—that's like an instant in our sight." No, a thousand years is a, is a long time. In fact, none of us. Um, could even probably dream of what it would be like to know everything that would happen over the course of a thousand years. And yet a thousand years for God are but like yesterday. They're like a dream. Something that happens, but then that's it. And it, So this is the first sense of scale that we, we have here in this psalm that, that points uh, to the amazing power the amazingness that is God, almost an indescribable uh, amazingness to be able to be eternal. A lot of times we say God is eternal, and we kind of just say, yeah, yeah, we've learned that from, you know, since we were little kids or in confirmation. But to actually conceptualize that and think about that, that God is eternal, is something that puts our own earthly lives in perspective. And that's something Moses is going to do in this psalm. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream. Like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and, in, and is renewed, and in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. And again, there's our first instance where we hear that, that word, by the wrath of God, by the anger of God. And we're going to see that um, throughout the lessons. Um, but I would encourage you to not, not be too downtrodden about that immediately, because while it is a humbling reminder, um, it's not all that God has to say uh, about us. It could be all, but w- the great news of the gospel is it is not all that God has in store for us. So we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. We cannot stand before the Lord. You have set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. Uh, To me, it's really interesting that, you know, you think all the way back to Moses. What were some of the secret sins Moses had in his life? Obviously, we have the story where uh, he killed a man that he had to run, go into hiding. Um, But also you think about his own leadership and what happened while he was in charge of the Israelites. Like when he was up on Mount Sinai. What were the Israelites doing in a, I guess, maybe not so secret, but secret to Moses at the time? What were they doing while he was up talking to God on Mount Sinai? Yeah, worshiping a golden calf. So Moses reminds us that God knows all. That we have, you have set our iniquities before you and that our secret sins are brought to light in your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. yet their span is but toil and trouble. Uh, it's a pretty humbling couple verses there. Not only uh, does it remind us of our own mortality. But when you think of our lives, our human lives, our earthly lives, in the scheme of the eternity of God, it is but like a sigh. Just, and that's it. And you think, that's why I said, no, don't be too downtrodden right away, because there is the reality of God's wrath, but that's not all he he has to say. But when we think of ourselves so often, I mean, we focus, we make such a big deal about what happens on a week-to-week basis, let alone over the course of our entire life, And yet, Moses reminds us it's just but a sigh in the grand scheme of things. Um, That the years of our lives are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. It's a reminder of what exactly is our earthly life in the scope of eternity, Uh, the quick answer is well, it's not much in the scope of eternity. That 70 or 80 years—if a thousand years is like yesterday for God—what's 70 or 80 years? A moment, an instant. Um, and again, that can be something that we, in our own desire, our own pride, can fight back against. Naturally, we make ourselves very self-important at times, uh, and I think we've seen that. Um, and, and that goes well started well before 2020 started, right? But we do have a a horrible tendency, a horrible temptation to make ourselves greater than we truly are. To make ourselves the most important thing that could ever exist. And Moses uh, reminds us in this psalm that no, our, our lives, our years, 70 or 80, maybe 90 or even 100, not only are they like a sigh, but they're filled with toil and trouble. And they are soon gone and we fly away. And then verse 11 introduces what I think is a very interesting question. And one, at first glance, I think we'd be kind of tempted to give a knee-jerk answer to. But then when we really think about it, uh, it, it's a far deeper question than than just a surface-level kind of proposition. Verse 11 of Psalm 90, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of? of you who actually takes the time to consider the anger and the wrath of God now before anyone labels this too much fire and brimstone right away on a sunday morning right it is an important question to ask when's the last time have when's the last time we have considered god's righteous anger and wrath towards those who sin. I had to think about it for a moment. It'd been quite a while. It's not usually the first thing I want to wake up and do on a Sunday morning, right? (laughs) All right, good morning, world. Let's consider God's anger and wrath. Yet, Moses reminds us, that's what we really should be considering. In the grand scheme of things, that's something um, that we can't hide from. That those secret sins will be brought to light in the presence of God. That we will be held accountable. So have you considered the power of God's anger and his wrath? But what's Moses' response to that? It's not, you know, yes or no and now move on. But there's actually a purpose to him asking that question. And that's in verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And that's why I said earlier that sense of scale is so important because ultimately, where does wisdom come from when we examine our lives? For many people, it's experience. But one area that Moses says we can gain a heart of wisdom is to be reminded of the reality that our own earthly lives are fleeting and yet God is eternal. That we can't stand in the face of God's righteousness on our own. We don't have what it takes, and quite frankly, we don't amount to a whole lot compared to the greatness and the holiness, the righteousness of God. So what can we do? Well, it's not an existential crisis. In fact, Moses himself uh, gives us the quick answer. Num- teach us to number our days. Teach us to consider our days, to remind ourselves to not think that we can just throw the days of our lives away. That we can just throw away what we do on a daily basis because there will be another year. I think this will be a great psalm for the new year when we all do our New Year's resolutions that we know are probably going to get pushed to the next year and the next year and the next year, right? Because at some point there will not be a next year. And part of being wise is understanding that humbling reality, that we, our days are numbered. And so we ask, uh, just like Moses did, that God would teach us to number them so that we may get a heart of wisdom. And then in verse 13 we read, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. I always chuckle a little bit uh, when I read that because uh, my grandfather used to say this all the time. You'd say, "How long, O oh Lord?" You know. Car breaks down. How long, O oh Lord? And I don't know. It just always reminds me of uh, of him and, and how he would say that, and, and in, in somewhat in jest, but also in a very serious sense, that he knew uh, he was uh, he would teach me that. <laughs> hey, the most important thing you can do is know who Jesus is, know who God is, and so very truly, we can pray just that, uh, like uh, Pastor Thomas did at the end of his sermon this morning. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. How long, O Lord, please return. Have pity on your servants. And now you may notice that kind of the sense of the psalm changes. It goes from uh, a reminder of our own feebleness, our own uh, relative uh, short lifespan, to asking God to satisfy us in the morning with his steadfast love. That we may rejoice and be glad all our days. It's kind of a funny transition if you think about it. He just spent the first part of the psalm telling us how little our days were, and now he transitions immediately into that we may be rejoice, that we may be joyful, rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. Again, it, it's a very uh, humbling, but also I think a, a slightly uh, important reminder that those days filled of. Toil and trouble. We ought to be glad in. and you notice the, how he describes them: that God has afflicted us with our days. Uh, it's kind of a strange phrase. and I wouldn't advocate necessarily leading with that when people talk to you about, you know, why do you live, you know, for Jesus, or how, you know, what does being, you know, being a Christian mean for you? Well, it means that God's afflicted me with a certain number of days. I wouldn't exactly start there, but it's a reminder that uh, even in in those days of toil, of trouble, that God does bring us joy, that God does make us glad. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. This is the heart of Moses' request, these these last two verses, that God's work would be shown to his servants, that his glorious power would be made known to their children. Now, I'm not a parent yet, but uh, for those of you who are parents, um, perhaps this is something maybe in a slightly different language or different uh, wording that you may have prayed for your own children, that God would be present and active in their life. That they would know the glorious power of God and what he's done for us in Christ Jesus. And in verse 17, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. It's interesting, especially considering all we've done in the past few years with Tell the Next Generation How similar this ending of Psalm 90 uh, is to what we as a congregation made a big priority uh, in our own church body. That we said, Lord, uh, let us see your work be done in the lives of the next generation and the generation after that and the generation after that. And we built the new school and it's gone fantastically. Obviously, no one could have predicted the whole host of challenges that we've had in 2020 But it is amazing to see how God works through the works of his humble servants hands. And while none of us physically laid the brick in the mortar uh, for that school building, many of us had an instrumental role to play in getting uh, that building built and seeing how God has been at work in the lives of children uh, in that school. We've had a couple of baptisms already, and there are even more um, that have contacted us wanting to have their children baptized. And to me, when I read this psalm, I thought of that instantly, that, yeah, that's our prayer as a church, that what we build, God, you would work through it, that you would establish your kingdom, your work, your will through the work of our hands. And no, we don't do it perfectly. You know, we we have as many faults and flaws as, as anyone else. Yet it is still our constant prayer as a congregation, as a church, as Christians, that in the work of our hands, your will, your work would be done and established. So I think it's a pretty cool psalm. It's a great reminder for us. Um, it's also a humbling psalm, especially when we consider um, how he talks about the own finite limitations of our own lives. But at this point I'll open it up, are there any questions anyone has regarding Psalm 90? It's a psalm we should read out yes. Yes. In fact, there are so many Psalms that I've found, you know, you think like, oh, I didn't even realize the Bible spoke like that. Whether it's, uh, in terms of our own existence, in terms of our own emotions, sometimes our own frustrations, our own despair. Um, one of the greatest tools God has given us is the ability to read through the Psalms, to pray the Psalms. Um, I'm not gifted in singing, but if you are, you could even sing the Psalms. No one wants to hear me singing at seven in the morning. but, you know, that is such a great gift that God has given us through his word. It is absolutely a psalm that we should read often, along with the rest of the psalms. You know, there's 150 psalms, and we have 360 some odd days. Pretty sure if we just read one psalm a day, we could get through the entire psalm book. I'm not great at math, but at least twice and then some, every single year, Uh And some, you know, some Psalms are longer. You might want to break up uh, a couple of them, but some are only two verses, like Psalm 127. So, you know, it evens out. uh, But I think that would be something that I would certainly encourage and sometimes been a a benefit to my life because we do forget the wealth of of the wisdom that God has for us. um, Not only uh, throughout his whole word, word, but specifically in the Psalms. No other questions or comments? All right, well, then we're going to turn over to the back page, to the Old Testament reading. Uh, and this is Zephaniah 1, 7 through 16, but I'm also going to read verses 17 and 18, the rest of Zephaniah 1 and part of Zephaniah 3, because context here uh, is key. And this is where I said, you know, don't be downtrodden, especially when you read, uh, if you just read this and it was only this, uh, there would not be much hope in anything. Um, because it's a reminder of the reality of God's wrath. And like I said, this is a nice cheerful reading to pick us up after maybe a tough or contentious week that we're reminded of God's anger and his wrath. be silent before the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guest. And on that day of the Lord's sacrifice... He says, I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. So I'm going to stop right there for a moment to just kind of pick up on a couple things that Zephaniah establishes right away. First of all, uh, we don't have to have any doubt as to whose day is coming. It is the Lord God, Yahweh Eloheinu. The day of the Lord is near. Now, if you were in church this morning and you heard the Old Testament reading, From Amos chapter 5, you may say, well, that seems very similar. And the answer is, it is extremely similar um, to Amos' own proclamation about the day uh, of the Lord. On that day, uh, and there's something, I think, pretty particular about how Zephaniah opens up this section. That On that day, and really what he's going to get into is there will be a day in which you are held accountable. And your first question may be, well... Who's going to hold me accountable? It is the Lord God. And under what authority does he have to hold us accountable? Why must we answer to him? Well, what's it mean that we're accountable to the Lord God? That means you're accountable to your creator, your maker, the one who gives you life. That this isn't just some, you know, random thing that you need to be held accountable to. No the maker of the universe, the maker of you, the giver of your life, on that day, on his day, will hold you accountable. He will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. This is, again, a contextual, there's a lot of contextual um, I don't want to say contextual sins because there's things that, in it that we can also be tempted to, but maybe don't make at first the most sense to us. For example, why are the king's sons or officials going to be punished to array themselves in foreign attire? Is God trying to say we all have to have made-in-USA stickers on the back of our shirts, otherwise we're sinning? No. But what may be, I'm, I'll ask you guys, what may be the reason why uh, adoring oneself, kings and officials, dressing like foreigners or in foreign attire, what, why might that be problematic? Foreign gods, they're trying to be like other people. And we're going to see that with the next statement, and it kind of clears it up when he says, uh, everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. That phrase, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold. There's two possibilities here, but both point to the kind of the same thing which is they're turning away from the Lord. The first is, uh, there are, there is some archaeological evidence that some of the other uh, ancient Near Eastern cultures and religions had this idea that um, there were either demons or evil spirits around the entrance of a building, and you didn't want to step on them and make them angry, so you would literally leap over the threshold. Um, kind of chuckled at that, because I think of all the baseball players every game who don't step on the... You know the foul line. It's a time-honored tradition, right? You don't mess up the the chalk. Um, but it's it, so a little bit like that. But obviously in baseball, they're not doing it for religious reasons. Um, but think of someone kind of doing that, and that, there's evidence that that was a part of um, some ancient Near Eastern cultures' religious practices. Now. I don't want to say for sure that's exactly what he's saying here because we don't have an evidence where he says, like this group over here, like these people over here. The other option is this was done, uh, again, kind of in the same vein, but just simply superstitiously. And this is, again, maybe where the baseball analogy is uh, (laughs) appropriate for us to understand, that kind of just out of superstition, sometimes people would not step over the threshold but kind of leap over the threshold But ultimately, what do both of those point to? If you're behaving that way, what are you doing? Yes, trusting something other than the Lord. That you're saying you need to add these things, synchronize these other superstitions with what the Lord your God has given you. Uh, In fact, in theological circles, the fancy term for it is syncretism. That you, you combine these aspects of other cultures or other beliefs Um, And there are even religions around the world today that would still do this, but it's a reminder that, no, that's not what God wants you to do. God calls you to believe in what he has said and what he has done alone. So by arraying yourself in foreign attire or leaping over the threshold, and this potentially could even have been in the temple, that this is how uh, pastors or priests, you know, in those days were behaving, that they were incorporating some of these other superstitions into their religious practice, by doing that, you are not trusting what God has said, but you're trying to add to it what you see around you, the other cultures, the other things going on that you see around you. And it's important, I think, even today for us to make sure that what we're doing is based on God's word and not, especially in terms of worship, not just on what the culture has around us. Now, here at St. Paul's, I don't think we have a problem with that at all. I think we do a fantastic job. But um, it's not just a problem that Christianity has. There's lots of religions across the world where uh, you see them blend or meld these things together. But God is pretty specific. He says, no, you are to worship, you are to believe the things that I tell you. Not combine that with whatever uh, culture or the uh, beliefs of the day tell you are so. No, no you trust in my word and what I have done for you. And then continuing to verse 9, and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. That one's a little easier for us to understand why God would be upset (laughs) with that, right? Uh, That one's a little more straightforward. Verse 10, on that day, declares the Lord, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills. Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for the traders are no more, and all who weigh out silver are cut off. Now, you may think those are kind of some strange uh, things to include, a a gate of fish or a fish gate, a a second quarter, uh, uh, the hills, inhabitants of the mortar. Um, It's essentially those three things combined to represent all of Jerusalem. That the fish gate was in northern Jerusalem, The second quarter would be on the western side of Jerusalem. And then the loud crash from the hills or the inhabitants of the mortar, that's understood to be um, part of the southern uh, part of the city. So essentially what Zephaniah is saying is that this isn't going to just be in one location. This is everywhere. You're not going to be able to escape it. This is an accountability for all people. Uh, And they use uh, Jerusalem kind of as the analogy for the entire world, for all, not only of uh, Israel, but the entire world. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Uh, You kind of, again, it kind of maybe seemed like an oddity. Why would God need lamps, Right? But it's to illustrate this idea that no one is escaping this accountability. That even if you try to hide, God's going to find you. You can't hide. Um, so, you know, if that's what you were thinking you were going to try and do. And, of course, this is almost the natural human instinct. What do Adam and Eve do in the garden when they sin? Hide. Yeah. At first they realize they're naked and they're embarrassed. And then they try to hide from God. Uh, the worst game of hide-and-seek ever, right? Because <laughs> God knows exactly where they are, and, and the point here in Zephaniah is that no one will escape this accountability before God. That God will punish the men who are complacent, who say in their hearts, which is a Hebrew idiom for saying, say in secret, the ones who would believe this but not say it out loud. The ones who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill basically the ones who would say, well, God's not going to do anything to me. And that's where perhaps is a very relevant example for us as Americans. How many people do we see or how many people do we even know who sometimes take that attitude towards God in their life? Well, I'm trying to be a good person, so God's really not going to do too much to me, right? Or, you know, God's not really going to take care of me. You do know that. That's a very common American idea, right? Uh, That's something that prevails not only in our, our pop culture, but even sometimes um, we can be tempted in our own lives to think that. Like, well, God must not really be caring about what I'm doing at the moment. Uh, and, and I is a good reminder that no, <laughs> he does care. And if you say it even just in secret, perhaps you still are coming to church every Sunday or you're in Bible class, but you know deep down you're like, eh, I'm not really sure God's paying much attention to me or paying much attention to our country or the world, Uh, God, again, reminds us, no, he is. Verse 13, their goods shall be plundered and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. Long story short, all will be lost. Whatever you are trying to build of your own uh, might, of your own strength, Whatever you're thinking, your security is stored up in. You're not going, it's not going to be of use to you before God. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. And here the bitterness is twofold. One, uh, It it is truly uh, not a pretty sight to see the wrath and the anger of God. That's not something we uh, rejoice in, and in fact, that's what Amos says in Amos chapter five, our Old Testament reading for today. Right? Why do you say you look forward to the day of the Lord? How could you say that? Um, But also, there's that bitterness in the sense of pure fear. That that mighty man—it's a warrior. In Hebrew, that's just a warrior, that even those who are the most battle-tested, battle-hardened, the strongest of the strong, the best of the best, they can't do anything but cry aloud. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. This is the word of the Lord, right? We end there. (laughs) And then you don't exactly have the most enthusiastic, you know, thanks be to God following it. Because that is a humbling reminder, those uh, two verses there, that it's a day of wrath. In fact, this section of Zephaniah um, is the basis for the very famous and very old hymn, The Deus Irae, which if you ever just go on YouTube and listen to it, I guarantee you know it because it's been in about 150 movies. Um, And so I guarantee you are familiar with the tune at least. Uh, But a day of wrath is that day. Distress, anguish, ruin, devastation, darkness, gloom. Clouds of thick darkness and trumpet blast. That this is a day of absolute calamity. And that a day of darkness, which is kind of maybe closely understood as obscurity, in the sense that uh, when something is obscure, you don't know what's going on. You don't have the right answers. You don't have any ability to figure out how to get out of this predicament. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and the lofty battlements. And those fortified cities, of course, in these days, if you had a city, one of the first things you did was build a wall because you wanted to protect it from invaders. Um, But then the lofty battlements, I thought this was pretty interesting. In, In Hebrew, it's just the corner. And I was like, well, how did they get lofty battlements from just the word corner? Well, if you think about a city and, and even thinking like maybe medieval castles perhaps that you've seen and you think of them, let's just say it's a square layout. Uh, where do they put usually the watchtowers up on the corners? And so it was interesting because it, when I looked at it in the Hebrew, I was like, well, that a corner, I, I, how did they get lofty battlements out of that? But even in those days, they'd put watchmen and kind of their defense on the corners because you have a further uh, you have a, a larger uh, sight line, obviously, being on a corner. You can cover two sides. Uh, but also, it's just good, kind of sound military strategy. Uh, so that's how uh, they get uh, lofty battlements from that. Now, our reading for next week ends at verse 16, but I wanted to continue just briefly into verse uh, 17 and 18, which is the rest of chapter uh, 1. I will b- bring distress on mankind. So that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end. He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Now you're reading that thinking, "Well, okay, at some point the gospel has to apply, right? Um, And while it's a great reminder that in case you were, you know, confused by the first 16 verses, your silver and your gold, your money, the things you store up, they're going to be of no use to you as well. You can't buy your way out of this day, out of this judgment. I also brought with me Zephaniah 3. So this is how Zephaniah begins his prophecy Listen to how he ends it starting at Zephaniah verse or chapter 3 verse 14 Sing aloud o daughter of Zion shout o Israel rejoice and exult with all your heart o daughter of Jerusalem the Lord has taken away the judgments against you he has cleared away your enemies the king of Israel the Lord is in your midst and you shall never again fear evil on that day it will be said to Jerusalem fear not o Zion Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. And at that time, when I gather you together, I will make you renowned and praised among the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes. Now, there's exactly one and a half chapters that separates what we read for our reading for next Sunday and the end of uh, Zephaniah 3. Which is the end of Zephaniah's prophecy. And you may be thinking. Well how in the world did we get from. The day of wrath. All the way over to Zephaniah 3. Where it seems to be this exultation of rejoicing. A day of gladness. Um, and I think this is where. What is such an important reminder exists for us. Uh, in Zephaniah. The sweetness of the gospel. The sweetness of what God has done for us. uh is only truly realized when we have, as the psalm said, considered his anger and his wrath. That when we understand what we deserve to have coming our way, when we understand what our sin has bought for ourselves, only then can we fully understand the great sacrifice and the great gift that God's love and his mercy is for us. And if you listen to these verses from Zephaniah 3, 3 think of who, uh, perhaps, or think of some other verses, perhaps you might hear something very similar to this. Oops, I lost my place. Where to go? Oh, here we go. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Those uh, That verse 317 I love because it's a reminder of uh, what God does for us, that God would come into our midst in Christ. And obviously Zephaniah is the Old Testament. This is a prophecy for what is to come, what it means that the day of the Lord is near, but that God has revealed himself to us in Christ to save us. That when Jesus sees us lost Broken sinners, he rejoices over us, right? Like the shepherd who would go out and leaving his the ninety nine would find the lost sheep and would rejoice with him gladly. That he would quiet us with his love. And again, I think I've said this a couple times in this class, but to be quiet in those days is a luxury. To be able to be still was a luxury because it meant you were safe. It meant you were secure. It meant you didn't have to look behind you to see any invading armies coming to take all that you have. That we are quieted from that toil and the trouble of life by the love of God. Uh, and that's why I think, uh, my wife says I'm a pessimist, so I'm drawn to things like this, where we have two and a half chapters of wrath and about six verses of God's love. And I said, yes, that's, that's awesome. But truly, I think it does uh, bring a humbling reminder to us that, deserve God's wrath there's no other way to get around that that the day of the Lord is a day when we'll be held accountable and of our own doing there should be nothing for us to even say we should just be wiped off the face of the earth have God look at us and say I don't know you get out of here and yet in Christ that accountability was poured out onto his head that Christ suffered and died so that we might be called the children of God. That was last week uh, in uh, the epistle lesson from 1 John uh, chapter 3 for All Saints Day. You might be called God's children, and so you are. That God, the very God who deserves to wipe you off the face of the earth, instead sacrificed himself so that he could know you and could call you to himself. Uh, So I find Zephaniah 1, the day of wrath, very uplifting. I don't know about you guys. Uh, Any questions on Zephaniah chapter 1 that you might have? No? All right. Let's get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And the reason why I spend so much time on Zephaniah is because with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you're going to see a very similar argument made by Paul. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night while people are saying there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. The thief in the night is the one that usually gets all the press, right? That's the one people generally remember and sometimes make a little too much um, out of. But the reality is it will happen like that. Just as Zephaniah said that it will be sudden and yet uh, while people are saying there is peace, sudden destruction will come. That while people are saying, I'm secure in my earthly life with my earthly possessions, while things seem to be going nice and dandy, um, while I don't need to worry about God, the times I don't need to consider God's wrath or his anger towards my sin, that's when it's going to come. And, and it's, that's a very humbling uh, reality. And uh, this morning in the gospel reading and, and pastor thomas's sermon we're we're told to you know not be caught unaware to be prepared again this is kind of um the, this week and next week kind of are two sides of the same coin again paul is reminding us don't be unprepared don't say well i've got peace and security in myself because you don't and that will suddenly be taken from you uh and he says they will not escape but then in verse 4 this is why I said it kind of echoes Zephaniah Paul says but you are not in darkness you are not in obscurity you are not to be uninformed brothers for that day to surprise you like a fie- thief that on that day Christians should not be oh where did this come from right we are not to be uninformed we are not to be surprised. Why? Because we're not in the obscurity of darkness. We know the light and the life we have in God. We are children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. And this is the start of several kind of compare and contrast uh, analogies Paul uses here in First Thessalonians 5. So you have light versus darkness. Then going on into uh, verse 6. So then let us not sleep... As others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So, again, you have that idea of sleep versus being awake being obscured or being in the dark and being in the light, being unaware or being ready. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. For a helmet, uh, the hope of salvation. And here's uh, really, I guess if you were to summarize all everything Zephaniah said, you could have just gone to First Thessalonians 5 verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but rather to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live in him. I think he probably added that last part in verse 10 because you know he, was, he knew he was going to get the question, so are we never supposed to sleep? <laughs> because you keep telling me to be awake and sober-minded, should I just try and keep myself up all hours of the day? And Paul said, No. When you know Christ, whether you're waking or sleeping in that moment is not a concern to you because you're not going to be caught unaware. You're not going to be caught uninformed. This isn't going to surprise you like a thief, but rather you have the breastplate of faith and love the helmet of hope of salvation because God has not destined you for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore encourage one another to build one another up just as you are doing. What's such a great reminder there is uh, you look out at the world, how many people say, yeah, I'll come back to church when, you know, later on down the line or perhaps, you know, well, you know, he's not, they're not, I'm not taking my, fa- you know, I'm, I, yeah, I'll be back at church eventually. You know, Paul speaks directly against that sort of attitude right here. Um, and that's what's been, uh, I think, tough for a lot of people in their lives is we've all had moments where we have not been as faithful as we ought to have been. And yet, Paul reminds us as Christians, we should never be caught in that sort of attitude. We should never be caught in the obscurity or in the darkness, but rather, we are children of the light, children of the light of God. And therefore, we are aware, we are awake, uh, privy, knowing what's going to come. When it's going to come, we don't know, but we know what's going to come. All right, we've got five minutes and an entire gospel reading to get through. So <laughs> we'll see how close we get. But maybe I'll just summarize it because it's probably one you are very familiar with. It's the parable of the talents. The master of the house gives three servants a... Uh, a set amount of talents and talents is a monetary form roughly 15 to 20 years worth of an average man's working salary. So this is a big amount of money. This is nothing to just laugh at. This is someone saying, Hey, I'm going away for a couple of years. Um, I'm gonna give you, you know, $10 million to watch over. And so, you know, hopefully when I get back, I have that $10 million, otherwise I'm coming after you. So these servants look at these talents and all of them realize what a big gift uh, these talents are. And the one with five, it says he went to, um, uh, he traded and made five talents more. So he started with five, he has 10 now. And the one with two Also had two talents and made two talents more and we don't know how he did it We don't know if it was through trading or wise investment or through livestock or anything like that Just know that he was diligent and also made two talents more But then the one with one talent We read that he just simply dug a hole Was so scared by what he'd been given. He didn't want to lose it He dug a hole because he was worried that the master would be so mad if he lost that talent. He dug a hole And put it in the ground So when the master comes back, he receives that one talent he gave uh, his servant. And he says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping for where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. Uh, something that's always very interesting to me about this parable is for this sort of sum of money, you know, it's not a check. They didn't have checks in those days. This would have been physically an, a, a pretty imposing just volume of either cash or it could have been even um, because of the barter system, livestock or things like that. Probably not livestock because he buried it. But this would have been a large hole he had to build. And the master points out right away, if you really wanted to just protect what I had, you spent more labor making sure that my money didn't grow at all. What I gave you didn't grow at all. You spent more effort digging a hole than it would have even taken to just simply go to the banker and allow me to collect interest until I return. Because I always thought it's weird that he's called a slothful servant. And especially when the master himself gives him an idea. But that, that slothfulness, in some commentators, there is some disagreement, but I like this idea that the, his slothfulness or his, his lack of faithfulness was more that he F went out of his way, exerted a lot of effort to make sure his master didn't get any sort of value or return on that investment. Um, now, we have two minutes left, so that... Uh, What's the point of this parable? Well, there's, I think, two key things. One, whose talents do the servants have? The masters. In fact, if you look at verse 14 of Matthew 25, uh, he called his servants and entrusted to them his property. It started making me think, okay, what has God entrusted me with? And all of us in our own lives can think of it this way. What has God entrusted us with? And there are some things. uh, This, in fact, is kind of a perfect uh, lesson to go over on Stewardship Sunday, which is uh, today. But that God has entrusted us uh, with many gifts, whether it's talents, uh, whether it's treasure, whether it's time. And and if you haven't been to church yet, I'm I'm not spoiling anything, but it is Stewardship Sunday. So we're going to talk a little bit about what it means that God has given us time, talent, and treasure We are called to not just sit on those things. In fact, um, what we're especially called to not do in this parable is not actively repress the growth of those things. That our faith is not just an idle faith, but our faith is one where we are called to not only share it with others, but use what God has first given to us, the property, the things that he has given to us to be... um, to be his example in the world to go out and see where his property can work for the good of him so now it's ten twenty-five. 25 um, so that was the gospel lesson in five minutes three minutes When <laughs> uh, we're out of time so i am going to ask like we have been doing that you would grab a wipe from the back counter or maybe if someone wants to volunteer for each row where we are, we're kind of seated this morning so that before living stone We can wipe down each chair where we have people uh, seated for the Bible class. Um, But before we do that, let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we're so thankful for uh, the reality of who we are to you, not because we deserve it. In fact, if it was about what we deserve, well, uh, Zephaniah uh, made it clear that uh, it's, it's not a pretty sight if we were to just get what we deserve. But we thank you because you have saved us. You have dwelt among us and you have died for us. And we pray that we would never... Uh, waste the gift that our faith the gift that our time our talents our treasures that you have given to us truly are we pray that as we go about our lives that we'd be an example uh, of your joy of your peace the love that uh, surpasses all understanding that you have given to us and we pray all these things in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen